This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with natural, non-toxic, medical-grade ingredients. Active Skin Repair uses a molecule called hypochlorous acid, which mimics our natural immune response to cleanse, soothe irritation, reduce inflammation, and support healing. We've been loving Active Skin Repair for all the cuts and scrapes that show up in the active toddler life. Sage loves that there's both the spray version, but also a cream version. He likes to get to choose which one he's going to do. He calls it the magic cream. And it's been so great for taking care of Mila's neck rash now that she's full on teething. Can we get a minute for a teething three and a half month old? What in the world? Active Skin Repair has thousands of five-star reviews and the ingredients so safe and clean, they can be used from the youngest member of the family to the oldest. Keeping it simple with one soothing solution for all your family's skin health needs. Visit www.activeskinrepair.com to learn more about Active Skin Repair and to get 20% off your order, use code VILLAGE. That's www.activeskinrepair.com, code VILLAGE, for 20% off your order. You're listening to Voices of Your Village. This is episode number 102. Last year, I read the book Gift of Failure and loved it so dang much that we had my entire team read it, and we are all obsessed with it. It is so phenomenal, so we reached out to Jessica Leahy, the author of this bad boy, and she so graciously joined us to talk about things like helicopter parenting and this desire for our kids to succeed and not experience hard things and how really, when we're talking about resiliency and overcoming challenge, they've got to experience hard things along the way. Her book, The Gift of Failure, is brilliant, and I'm really pumped to share this interview with you all today. I highly recommend that you go snag that bad boy on Amazon or wherever you get your books. I own it now in print and on audiobook, because one just wasn't enough. All right, y'all, let's dive in. Welcome to Voices of Your Village, a place where parents, caregivers, teachers, and experts come to support one another on this wild ride of raising tiny humans. We combine decades of experience with the latest research to create the modern parenting village. Let's dive into honest conversation about real parenting challenges so it doesn't have to be this hard. I'm your host, sleep consultant, child development specialist, and passionate feminist, Alyssa Blass Campbell. Hey everyone, today I am here with Jessica Leahy from The Gift of Failure. I read this book and then before we did this interview, my entire team ended up reading this book because we loved it so much. Hey Jessica, how are you? Good, thank you. I'm so glad everybody liked it. Yeah, it's awesome. Our team is made up of both parents and teachers and so we were all just like very into this conversation. It's such an important one. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and kind of how you got here? Sure. I have been a teacher for about 20 years. I I started teaching when I was pregnant with my college age kid who's upstairs right now recovering from finals by taking a a nice long sleep. So yeah, he's 21. So I've been a teacher for 20 years. 
everything from, uh, I've taught every grade from six to 12 and I've taught writing and English and Latin. I was a Latin teacher for like six years. And, uh, you know, and the teaching, writing about education sort of snowballed into writing more about motivation and learning and how kids learn and how kids uh, stay motivated for the right reasons. And um, all of that sort of culminated with this moment in when I was teaching middle school where I realized that a whole bunch of my students were really um, not motivated anymore, not that interested in school, except for how many points and you know what that was gonna turn into with their grade. And so I was really concerned about helping my students. And then at the same time, realized that my kids were going through a similar transformation as well, where they were either being completely overparented by me and being rendered helpless, or um, they just were really in it for the points and the grades in the score and weren't really that motivated by the learning anymore. So this became kind of a, I had to look at my own behavior. That's <laughs> the worst. <laughs> I know, it'd be so much easier if I could just be critical of everybody else. And unfortunately, as you know, I, I really was fairly annoyed with some of the parents of my students for being overly directive and overly controlling and doing too much for their kids and saving their kids from the consequences of their actions. And I was doing the exact same things <laughs> with my own kids. So it's been a, it's been an interesting journey. The past decade or so has been, you know, looking at how to change that and what the research says about what needs to be changed and all that kind of fun stuff. It's yeah. plus my job is so much fun. My, my job is to read research and translate it for a popular audience and and it couldn't be more fun than that that's awesome yeah i appreciated that in your book like i'm a research junkie and i'm here for it and so that was that was fun i was listening to a part of a talk that you gave at south by southwest mm -hmm. and i heard you reference a question where you asked middle and high school kiddos about the connection of parental love and good mm -hmm. grades can you share that with our listeners cuz i would yeah. love to dive into that yeah, sure. So the setup for that question I ask kids, so I often talk to kids, um, I'll often go to schools and I, t I get to talk to the kids during the day. I do professional development with the teachers in the afternoon and then I speak to the parents in the evening. And the kids are so great because I give them all my email address and I ask them, you know, what do you want me to talk to your parents about this evening? What do you really want me to tell them? So that part's super fun. But what I do almost always at the beginning of a talk is ask them, I ask all the the adults in the room to close their eyes because I don't want any of the kids to feel embarrassed. And I ask them um, to raise their hands if they're getting paid for their grades and about 15 to 20% of hands go up. And then I ask them how many are getting stuff for their grades, like electronics or whatever gifts. And that's usually 20 to 25%. And then I ask every single person in the room to close their eyes, even the kids. And I ask them to raise their hands if they really, truly, in their hearts, believe that their parents love them more when they get high grades and less when they get low grades. And I've tried this question a bunch of different ways to make it as not, as not leading as possible. And in middle school, about 80% of the kids raise their hand and say, yeah, I believe my parents love me more when I get high grades and less when I get low grades. And about 90% of the high school students do. Um, and a lot of them come up to talk to me about it afterwards and say, you know, I hadn't really ever thought about it in those stark terms before. I 100% believe that is true. So that's, you know, devastating. Totally. <laughs> you can call it love in exchange for performance. You can call it outcome love. Um, I wrote about it in the New York, in the Washington Post as outcome love. 
uh, mainly because that was what the guy I interviewed talked about it as. Um, but yeah, it's it's pretty emotionally devastating for kids. Yeah, for sure. And I I believe that it's not any adult's intention. Oh gosh, right? no. to, like cultivate oh, absolutely this. not. No, 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 no. And I, I talk about that on stage too. I say, you know, look, you know, I do a little, I, I do, I have a little two-part thing I talk about with parents, like, you know, about loving the kid you have, not the kid you wish you had, and about um, not just loving them based on their performance. And I joke that, you know, I say, oh my gosh, I would never do that ever in a million years, except for the fact that if you imagine a day when your kid brings home a really high grade and the way you react to that emotionally and how proud you are and how excited you are and and not necessarily talking very much about what they did to get that grade, but just how excited you are that it's an A versus the response you have when a kid comes home with, you know, I make a joke about, you know, a B minus being the new F, but whether it's an F or a B minus, um, you know, we have a very different, a very different reaction to that. And often our reaction to that low grade is silence. And that is withdrawal of love based on performance. And there are ways to not do that. And that's what I try to help teach parents. Um, you know, focusing on the process and less on the product and that kind of stuff. But no, we don't mean to do that. It's just that what we do and what we say can be two very different things. We can say what we care about is the learning all we want. But if we're acting like what we really crave is that really high grade, then that's what they believe, not necessarily what we say. I love it so much. Is that self-awareness uh, yeah, for ourselves, which is, as you pointed out at the beginning, the hardest part is looking at our own behavior. I have two questions kind of with that. One is like, how do you, how can we celebrate kids' accomplishments and share in their joy without it feeling like conditional love, mm-hmm. right? To still be like, yeah, I'm really proud of this thing. Even as an adult, like if I do mm-hmm. something that I'm really jazzed about, that I want folks who are there to celebrate with me and be excited with me, but that if I didn't do that, mm-hmm. their love wouldn't be conditional upon that. I mean, I think it's harder to do with people that you don't know very well, because of course people are going to, you know, your book hits the New York Times bestseller list and people are like, oh, that's the best thing ever. You're the best. You know, now suddenly you're a real writer, blah, you know. Right, right, right. Um, But with kids, I think it's all about um, what you're building at home. And one of the things that I talk a lot about in Gift of Failure is um, about the process of, you know, setting goals with kids, helping, uh, talking to kids about what's really important to them, not talking to kids necessarily about the stuff that you always want to talk about, but talking about the stuff that's important to them. Um, Asking your kids to teach you about the stuff that they feel is important. And then always giving that, um, bringing the conversation back to the process over the end product. And part of that has to do with the fact that then they can really believe us when what we talk, when what we say is we care about the learning. Um, Because our job is not you know, they're going to get lots of feedback about good grades and they're going to get lots of feedback about, you know, high scores. And that's, that's because that's what we're culturally, our whole entire culture is attuned to those things. But at home, what can be really great is if we're setting our own personal goals at home, if we're um, talking a lot about, you know, trying and failing and, and messing up and, you know, achieving the goals that are important to us. Um, It's just a part of what we do in our home all the time. And, you know, for me, it comes down to little things like, which I guess aren't that little, but for me, things like, um, you know, I've never, ever looked at the 
portal that you can look at um, for parents of younger kids. You may not know this, but when your kids get older, you will get a passcode of username to a portal and you can log on and look at your kids grades and points and scores any old time you want from your computer and some parents do it rather obsessively and I've never looked as a parent because that's we talk about those things and you know I'm keeping in close touch with their teachers if I need to I'm talking to them about it a lot but it's not I don't want to teach them that what I really care about are those numbers. What I really care about is how much the learning and what they're going to do differently next time if they screw up and what they are going to replicate if they did well this time and they feel like they really learned something. Um, and, and it's really hard <laughs> because, you know, there's uh, honestly, there have been times when my kids have really struggled in school and, and there was one of my kids um, had a class that he was really, really struggling in, but it also happened to be his favorite subject. Mm. And of course he was sticking with that and working so hard and working so hard to just get by. But man, just getting by in that course meant so much because he was working his butt off to learn and this subject material he really challenged himself with this class and the subject matter was so hard um and i sure i would have been happy if he'd gotten an a but that wasn't really the point in that class the point in this class is he was in it for all the right reasons and i you know i am so proud of the work he did in that class because um it would have been really easy for him to just sort of turn around and say, oh, you know what, I really, <laughs> I, I overextended myself. I think I need to quit this class. I think, it, you know, I'm still within the period where I can quit this class, I'm out. <laughs> and totally. that would have been a, that would have been a real um, sadness. That would have been a real failure for me and for him, but sticking with it, even if it's not getting an A has been uh, an incredible experience for him. There was so many thoughts going through my head, but I do want to come to the second question that I have first. Yeah, of course. But I sorry, oh, I'm in a it, kind of a rambly. I'm looking out. No, I love it. I'm <laughs> in kind of a a rambly headspace today. I've got a lot of editing to do. So. Oh my god, no, I love it. Uh, that there's a lot of rambling that happens here. First of all. I want to know, like, so for me personally, when I think back to this, like, what are your thoughts on encouraging kids to do better in like the low grade areas to improve mm -hmm. versus focusing on their strengths? For instance, I remember taking this photography class and I have no desire to be a photographer. <laughs> I'm not good at it. It's not something that like, I, it doesn't jazz me up at all. Mm -hmm. Like 0%. In fact, when I like was starting to bring seed on seed and so onto Instagram and somebody was like, Oh, you have to like be able to do like photos. And I was like, Oh, yikes. <laughs> like, no. <laughs> um, and like, thank God for graphics. That's been so much nicer. But I like, I remember being in this space where I was just like, this isn't fun for me. And really mm -hmm. just skating by because I had to take an art class in mm -hmm. high school and I had to get this, but it wasn't fun. I could have worked harder for sure. I could have whatever to get a higher grade, but it, for what? Right. Like right. rather than putting my energy into like, say, writing or mm -hmm. math, which I love. So what are your thoughts on like encouraging kids when they come home and they have that C or whatever? And like, yeah. I think we often focus on like, how do we get that C up? Right. 
versus like, wow, you love math and you're so engaged in it and you're crushing also like with an A, but you're so engaged in it. You Mm -hmm. love it. Right. You know, there's a a couple of things come to mind. Um, So I was talking to an administrator at a school recently about the fact that he runs a lovely K through eight school. And in middle school, one of the things they do is they offer, you know, grade level math. And then they offer the ability for kids to really stretch themselves and take the above grade math class. So out of, let's say, I can't remember, it was a, it was a really small school, like out of around 50 students, all but six took above grade math. All of those kids were not ready for above grade math. So what they had to do was these six kids that took the below grade math well, I'm sorry, the at grade math, where they were supposed to be, who were there um, by, you know, either because their parents were realistic um, and, you know, one kid was there specifically because he really needed um, just to shore up his skills, still was being challenged. It wasn't like this class wasn't challenging, but I was talking to the administrator and I said, I don't, there seems to be this, um, this Everyone needs to be above grade level. We all have to be overachievers. Every single one of our children has to be overachieving. And in fact, when I am talking to parents at a school and I say, look, I I hate to tell you this, but most of your children are absolutely perfectly, wonderfully average. And there is nothing wrong with that. And, you know, there's a reason that when I I was speaking to sixth graders, actually, in New York recently, and this one sixth grade kid, no irony, no humor in his voice, raises his hand and said, I don't know if it's just me or not, but my parents tell me I'm perfect at everything. And I just don't think that can be true. And he was not joking. He was not being ironic. He was really, truly asking me this question. Like, I don't think I can be perfect at everything. And, and I said to him, I said, sweetie, I think you're absolutely wonderful. I'm sure you're a lovely person, but thank goodness you're not perfect because, oh my gosh, what pressure that would be. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Being back to work after maternity leave has been so good and frankly, so hard. I love what I do and I missed collaborating with my team while I was out and it's been a tough transition. The combination of a packed schedule and still being the milk machine for Mila Bean, it's hard to juggle everything. I feel so grateful for my weekly therapy hour. Sometimes I'm just holding so much and I need a safe space to let it out and get it off my chest. I've noticed that when I don't release it, it comes out anyway, but usually in ways that aren't aligned with how I want to show up in the world. BetterHelp is such a convenient, flexible option for parents who just can't take the travel time to get to an in-person therapy visit. It's entirely online. You can show up in your jammies, always a win in my book, and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you're on your way to feeling heard. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash voices today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash voices. Having Sage approved audio for our car rides is a literal lifesaver for my nervous system. And I love making lists of podcasts to share with him when he's ready. I was so excited to hear about a new show called Mysteries About True Histories affectionately known as math, M-A-T-H, geared toward the six plus crowd. 
Every episode follows two best friends, Max and Molly, who work together to solve riddles and math equations during their time-traveling adventures. Episodes drop every Thursday and are about 15 minutes long, the perfect length for car rides and mealtimes and stacked with so much laughter that your kiddos won't even realize how much they're learning. So tune in to Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. So I think there's something to be said for stretching yourself by trying something that's outside of your comfort zone. And, and maybe that's, you know, a Spanish class if you're not naturally good at languages or a dance class if you're not a movement oriented person. I, um, when I, when I read um, Mindset by Carol Dweck a bunch of years ago, when it first came out, I got so frustrated by the fact that I had allowed a math teacher to make me believe that I wasn't very good at math. And, and I think I told this story in the South by Southwest thing, but I can't be sure. So I went back in my early forties and retook algebra with my own kid and my own students actually. And it turns out it's not at all true that I'm not good at math. It's that math is hard. And, but at the same time, I was exposing myself to total mockery and ridicule by my children and my students because Many of my students were doing much better in that math class than I was, and I was in my early 40s. But I stretched myself in ways that also I know deep down my kids really, really admire. And so I think that's always important for all of us. I think our kids need to see us pushing ourselves in ways that are really uncomfortable. In fact, I just committed to learn Spanish. That is something I, I know another language. Spanish has been something I've always wanted to do, but have never buckled down to do. And I'm going to do it this year with a friend. And that's going to be embarrassing, humiliating, hard. Um, I don't like not being good at things the first time I try them. And so that's my kids are going to see me put myself out there. And that's the only way I can expect them to do the same thing. So that's when I talk about goals and in Gift of Failure, I talk about setting goals with my family. When we set goals as a family individually, but together as a group, one of the goals always has to be something a little scary. And I think that's so important for us to try that and for us to encourage our kids to do that. And there's no way they're going to do it unless we see it. They see us doing it too. And, you know, that's a hard thing for me to tell parents. And, you know, parents come to me and they say, how do I get my kid to take the challenge problems or to take the harder class or to put himself out there and try something that's maybe a little embarrassing at first because he's not good at it. And I say, well, do you do that? A mother asked me at one talk, um, my kids don't like to read anymore for pleasure. How do I get them? To, well, what she said was, can you recommend a list of books that's really hard that my kids are going to be excited to read? Like, like there's that magic list out there. <laughs> and I said, but do your kids see you read? And she had to admit that, no, she is busy and she just doesn't read a lot. But here's the worst part, actually. And so I said, I said to her, you know, I don't know what I could, I can't wave a magic wand and make your kids want to love to read if they don't see you making it a priority as well and enjoying it. And then I said afterwards, I said, but let's get back to your magic list. When your kids do read, what do they like to read? And she said, this is going to kill you. She said, well, they love those Diary of a Wimpy Kid books, but those are stupid, so I threw them away. 
I know, I know. It's like, oh, yikes. Like, <laughs> you do like to read, but you've essentially just told your kids they're stupid. Right. By They like to by read something demeaning. you don't like. Right, yeah. I mean, yeah. there's something to be said for, you know, when my kid was little, I didn't enjoy reading Captain Underpants to him. So that's why he taught himself how to read because I got tired of reading it. But telling your kids the books they love are stupid essentially tells them that we think they're stupid and that's just horrifying. Right. So anyway. Well, one the answer to your question is we should all be pushing ourselves to try things that are hard for us. And of course, we're not going to, things that are hard for us, we're not going to do as well at as things that are easy for us. I mean, it's just the totally. way it works. Totally. One of the things that kept coming up for me when I was reading this was that like we can't grant kids the gift of failure when we don't grant ourselves that gift. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we are like, tagline in seed is intention over perfection right mm -hmm. and they're like perfection isn't real and and yet we can say that over and over and still every single day i get dms of like i yelled at my kids today or i did this and i'm like great you're human right yeah. like that's a part of being human and we're truly not looking for perfection here but even down to things like it's really hard to ask for help i get this one yeah. a lot from parents it's really hard to ask for help and but then we want kids to ask for help instead of just getting frustrated when they're doing it, right? Like well, even even backing up, you said, oh, you know, a parent says, oh, I yelled at my kids today. That is an amazing opportunity to apologize to your child, to say, look, I am really sorry I lost my cool and I yelled and I shouldn't have done that because that wasn't fair or wasn't appropriate or whatever, but I'm going to try to do better next time then you're showing your kid exactly what it is they want to see you want to see from them and when parents say to me look okay so i have been doing way too much for my kid my kid i've been making my kid feel helpless and incompetent and i need to give them more autonomy so how do i do that and i say well especially with older kids well it works great with younger kids too you go to them and you say sweetie i thought i'd been doing this parenting thing really well but i I think I've been underestimating you. I think you can do more than I thought you could. What kind, and especially with little kids, this works so great. What, what kinds of things do you think you can do for yourself that I've been doing for you? And I learned some stuff. I read this book. It taught me some things, and I'm going to try to do better next time. So, how can I support you? And how can we help? You know, how can I help you be more confident? And the, with older kids, it works great because their minds explode because they're like, oh my gosh, she's admitting that she didn't do something right. And for little kids, they get all excited and they're like, yeah, I think I can do some stuff that you weren't letting me do before. I think I can, you know, whatever. Um, and sometimes it's just silly little things around the house, but sometimes it's, you have these realizations about the amount of underestimating that we do of our kids. So doing that, doing exactly what you're suggesting, which is to sort of let them see when we've, you know, maybe screwed up a little bit ourselves is incredibly valuable. I don't know who these parents are that think it's a secret that, that we're flawed. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, there's so many. <laughs> well, we talk about our screw-ups at the dinner table all the time. I ask my kids for advice on about stuff I mess up all the time. And, yeah, I love know, that. It, it's, I can't expect them to come to me when they want to do better if I don't show them that I'm willing to do better too.
Yeah. Are they willing to take risks and, yeah. and fail? I think part of it too is it's a lot of ego work. It's a lot of yeah. working on our own ego and our ability to fail and let that be okay and come back to the drawing board, et cetera. I, I think I reference this a lot in our work, but as a teacher, part of my practice was reflective practice and being able to look back and be like, man, where did the wheels come off the bus and yeah. what could we tweak or how could I better reach these kiddos? I'm not reaching, et cetera. And I don't think we teach that enough to parents that it's okay to, at the end of the day, be like, man, where did the wheels come off the bus and <laughs> yeah. what didn't go great? Yeah. And, and how can I tweak the system going forward? Yeah. I met, the, I met some teen teachers in California a couple of years ago who teach first grade or kindergarten. And one of the things they do during their teaching planning is plan moments when they'll make mistakes in front of the kids and either catch themselves in the mistake, like catch each other in the mistake or give the kids an opportunity to catch them in the mistake and then show the kids a positive adaptive response to failures, to mistakes. And, you know, I, I was asked a couple of years ago to be a part of this Amazon Prime show called The Stinky and Dirty Show. And when I was first asked, I was like, forget it. I'm not being a part of something that's about more screen time for kids. But I, I ended up doing it because, well, because it was the person who created Blue's Clues who asked me to do it. And I'm like, okay, I love you. And um, also because it's about these two, a digger and a dump truck who mm -hmm. have a task and they have to figure out how to do it right and how to get the task done. And they screwed up over and over again, but in a very constructive and proactive way, like, okay, that didn't work. How do we, what do we take forward with us that works and what do we leave behind that doesn't? And there's no denying we made a mistake, getting defensive, we made a mistake, you know, getting down on myself and calling, calling myself a failure. It's all about forward motion and how I'm going to do better next time. And, you know, being a part of that has been a real thrill because I have to get into the head of a preschooler when we're thinking about, you know, what, what problems and how they face them and how they can move forward and how we can be a good example for that. Totally. Holy moly, those mama's getaway tickets are going like hotcakes. So many of you snagged your mama's getaway ticket for 2020 in our launch month of December. We also got a bunch of messages from people saying one lump sum was really challenging for them financially. So for the month of January, we are offering a payment plan where you can put down just $125 today so that you have the opportunity to join us in April in Carlsbad, California to take a deep dive into who you are, what your habits and patterns are, what it looks like to rewrite those bad boys, and how to best show up for and serve your tiny humans in building their emotional development toolbox. I am so darn jazzed to hang out with y'all in California in April. Head over to mamasgetawayweekend.com to sign up and snag your ticket today for just $125 down right now. mamasgetawayweekend.com. Snag your ticket today. I also want to bring in here the like emotion processing part of this that when you make a mistake and when things don't go the way that you want, I, 
of course you're going to feel disappointed or frustrated or angry or embarrassed or whatever. And that those teaching kiddos, that those are all feelings that you're allowed to feel Mm -hmm. and giving them the tools to process it. Like, yeah, I I was building with a three-year-old. We had blocks and we were in my living room and I kept trying to build and it kept crashing down and it kept crashing down. And I like paused and I was like, gosh, this is so frustrating. It keeps crashing down. I'm going to take a second and take some deep breaths before I try it again. And I just like narrated this for her. Mm-hmm. She's just sitting there looking at me like, girl, you're crazy. And <laughs> I like, whatever, na- navigated it, went back to the drawing board and was like, you know what? I was putting this up here, but I don't think it's helping it balance. And I just, in the same way we do for infants and nonverbal mm-hmm. toddlers, it's just yep. narrating what I'm doing. Right. Yep. And then I go through it. I like got it to work this time. And I was like, oh, great. And then she put something on the side and it crashed down. And we re-entered this same process. And then hours later, my husband's home and the three of us are building on the on the floor. And again, I'm like building and something fell down. And she goes, it's okay, Lisa, you can take deep breaths. <laughs> and I was like, yes, but like, that's yeah. it. It's that modeling portion yeah. of, yeah, I do feel frustrated when this isn't mm-hmm. working. And I think that that's an important part here. Uh, one of the one of our team members in reading this, one of her questions was like, "What do we do when we're like playing games, like letting them win when like mm-hmm. we can totally beat them every time, or <laughs> um, if they lie to try and win in a game because they mm-hmm. don't want to lose? Like, how do we navigate that part and the feelings part of that of like?" I'm disappointed that I'm not winning or I'm embarrassed that I can't win or frustrated, yeah. et cetera. What are your thoughts there? Well, it's funny you should say that. When my oldest was really little, he uh, we couldn't play Candyland because it was too upsetting that he might get stuck in the sticky swamp. And we realized that at that particular developmental moment for him, it was too overwhelming. It was fine before, and it would be fine again, but at that particular developmental moment, it was not okay at all. And we just had to realize that we're just going to play something else for a while. But I think, you know, I think talking about the things we live in, I happen to be a part of a family where we talk and talk and talk and talk about sort of how we're feeling. And I think and that can be great. It can also be frustrating for people who aren't used to that to watch because especially um, when you look at sort of how boys and girls are socialized, um, t- talking about how we feel when we are frustrated can look very different for boys and girls um, based on the way we socialize these socialized kids. But it's incredibly important. And not doing that is the big reason that um, there was a great New York Times article recently about uh, a friend of mine, Phyllis Fagel, who's a counselor at the Sheridan School in D.C. It was an article about um, teaching boys about talking about their feelings and how that's one antidote to the sort of toxic masculinity thing. And her big thing is, you know, that the problem is, is that when we raise kids and we don't talk about either the reasons we're doing things, what our real goals are, and often with games, it's not, sometimes it's to win, but mostly for me anyway, um, playing games with my family is about playing games with my family. And I really, really don't care who wins. Um, some of my children may not feel the same way. They're usually <laughs> in it to win it. I'm usually just so delighted they're willing to spend time with me that I don't care who wins. 
Um, or we're doing it because we're learning something or we're doing it because it's challenging and chess is a great example of that. I, I wrote an article for the New York Times or for the Atlantic about how family game night can teach your kids. It's about teaching kids executive function through, through games. And it was uh, games like set and uh, corridor and these fun games that really do require kids to think a couple steps ahead and to have impulse control and think about their next move and that kind of stuff. I think our, again, modeling our comfort with not winning and our comfort with well, we're playing the game and and changing up the rules sometimes. We're I was playing um, uh, the game against oh Catan, Settlers of Catan with my college age kid and the rest of my family. And my son, my older son, studies economics in college, and so we he decided to change up the rules to include futures. So we had futures trading going on in the game, and it just added an extra layer, and it wasn't so much about the winning it was coming at it from a new creative angle and that's totally cool I have no memory of who won that game it doesn't matter to me I don't know probably matters to one of my kids but for me the whole process of being together and spending time doing games together tends to be more important than the outcome and I'm all about process over product over and over and over again that's sort of where my parenting philosophy comes from is you know every single time I'm tempted to either intervene, um, fix, uh, snowplow, helicopter, whatever the word you want to use is, you know, do I want to win right now? Do I need to be right right now? Do I want to do this for my kid right now? Or do I want my kid to be able to do this for themselves in six months or have this experience for, you know, endure for, you know, six months instead of have this, you know, happiness of winning right now. So that's all part of the modeling too. How do you, I, I also here for process over product, how do you practically implement that in a world where product drives <laughs> so much, right? Yeah. Or like, yeah, your grades on something might get you into a certain school or into a certain program, or it could, yeah. there could be something that then leads to whether or not you get the job or whatever. Right. Like, how do you right. practically, I guess, where's that balance? Well, number one, I, it's, I'm glad you brought up jobs because obvious, uh, often what I get from parents after I talk about gift to failure stuff is, yeah, 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 this all sounds so great, but college. So my first move is always to recommend the book, Colleges That Change Lives, and to ask them, please do not read the U.S. News and World Report ranking because, you know, choosing a school based on ranking, it, you know, can be a little silly. You know, an example of how we conveyed that same message to my own kid is um, when he started looking at colleges, I said, the one thing I will not do is put a sticker for your college on the back of my car, because the decision of where you go for your education is too valuable for me to co-opt for my own bragging rights on the back of my car. It's just not fair. Um, so given that, and given that I also completely understand that I am talking from a place of privilege because I can afford to send my kid to a place for college. I'm not, we haven't been reliant on a full scholarship, but often kids will come up to me and they'll say, look, you can say all this stuff, but if I don't get a scholarship to college, I'm not going to college. So given that that's where I'm coming from on this, one of the things that parents can do is you can look at the fact that education is moving in a direction where I think 
we're going to see more and more schools moving away from A through F grading. Um, when we moved a year ago, we specifically moved to a school district that does not use A through F grading. It uses what's called standards-based grading or mastery-based grading, where kids are evaluated on whether or not they know actual skills as opposed to how well they test or play the game of, you know, sitting in the rows quietly and raising their hand a lot. For me, I'm more interested in whether or not my kid's learning than how well he's reproducing that um, and regurgitating that. For, I've been a teacher long enough to know how testing works and, and tests themselves work. And this is not loosey-goosey. Um, I'm not being a loosey-goosey sort of like, oh, you know, grade them with colored pictures of rabbits and, you know, rainbows and unicorns. This is about the fact that to me as a teacher, learning is more important than a B because to me, I get, I see a B or an A and I say, especially as a teacher, okay, but what does the kid actually know? Um, whereas with standards-based grading, um, I can look at a report, a report card and say, oh, here's exactly what this kid does and doesn't know. Increasingly, colleges are saying, oh, that makes a lot of sense because by the way, colleges have figured out that AP calculus is not really college level calculus. So all these kids are getting to college with AP calculus on their transcript and the colleges suddenly saying, oh, wait a second, these kids can't pass freshman year calculus. They didn't really know the skills, but if you come out of a school that has standards-based grading, the teacher has had to list what skills the kid does and doesn't know. And so colleges are figuring that out and changing over to a more comprehensive way of looking at, at kids. I'm, I'm not saying we're there. I'm just saying we're, I'm optimistic. And if you look at, you know, mastery.org is a mastery transcript consortium. Um, they're looking at changing the way schools assess kids. But in the meantime, in the meantime, if you keep your eye on the ball, the fact that if your kid enjoys learning, they're going to go on to continue wanting to learn for longer. If your kid hates the fact that all of whether they learn or not is being reduced to the difference between an 89 and a 91, they're likely not going to enjoy learning for much longer. And one thing we know is that extrinsic motivators, motivators that come from outside of us, uh, grades, points, scores, money for grades, um, parents' surveillance over kids, uh, attempting to coerce and control our kids based on punishments or taking things away. All, and I'm not saying we can't use these things, it's just that these things, extrinsic motivators, do not boost motivation over the long term. They actually undermine motivation over the long term, and they undermine creativity too, which is a bummer. Um, the thing that works is the thing that keeps kids wanting to learn is what's called intrinsic motivation. You boost that with autonomy, giving kids a little more control over the details of their lives and the details of their learning and the details of their sports and music and whatever competence, not just helping kids feel confident, but helping them feel actually competent. Like, okay, this is harder than anything I've done before, but I've done these other easier things. And I think I can figure out how to do this. And knowing that they're truly connected to us, that they do, we don't just love them based on their performance and that we actually see and know and love them. Trying to coerce kids into learning through grades and points and scores and, um, you know, the trophies and the, you're grounded if you don't get a B or better, it undermines their motivation to learn. I say in the book, if you want 
your kid to not want to learn math, pay them for their math grades. It really is very clear cut and, and simple. And one of the things that's really interesting is that we don't just have a few studies on this. We have 40 years of really good studies because people have done what's called meta studies or metadata. They've looked at the actual studies themselves to see if they're quality and then done a big roundup of those studies. 40 years of really clear studies show that extrinsic motivators undermine motivation. They work in the short term, so they make us think they work, but they do not work over the long term and they undermine motivation. Yeah, I mean, that's creativity. It's so frustrating to spend the money and effort to buy your kids clothes just to have them grow out of the size within a week or have your kids complain that they itch, pinch, or just aren't comfortable. If you're with me on this, you've got to check out Posh Peanut. Their sensitive skin-friendly clothes are made from viscose from bamboo, stretch with your kid as they grow, and they're also made to last. Posh Peanut makes thoughtfully crafted, super cute clothing for kids and families. It is the softest thing, y'all. The design is all done in-house with different patterns and it came in the mail and I was like, oh my gosh, I want to wear this for myself every day. Their Lux women's pajamas and robes were all that I wanted to wear postpartum for nursing and hanging out on the couch with Mila. It helps so much that the fabric is breathable and chemical free, which means they're delicate against Mila's sensitive skin too. And I totally get why Posh Peanut is loved by over 1 million parents. Right now, Posh Peanut is offering our listeners 20% off your first order with promo code VILLAGE. Go to poshpeanut.com village and use promo code VILLAGE for 20% off your first order. That's poshpeanut.com village, promo code VILLAGE. Hormone Harmony is an all-in-one hormonal balancing solution for women of all ages. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. And that means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormone changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. Hormone Harmony is perfect for those horrible menopause symptoms that put your life on hold, like hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all these things. And the biggest benefit? Feeling like yourself again. That's what women mention over and over in their reviews. And there are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use the code VILLAGE at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use the code VILLAGE for 15% off today. That's totally it, is that it works in the short term. And so yep. it can feel Sticker real... charts work in the short term. Yep. Bribing kids works in the short term. And you know, one of the interesting thing about sticker charts, so sticker charts trick us. They really do seem like they work. And then they really, really don't. And there's a reason that sticker charts in particular for behavior are a total disaster is that they teach kids to do the right thing only when someone's watching, because why would you do anything when someone's not watching? You're not going to get a sticker for it. Um, Plus inflation, inflation happens. Um, (laughs) 
you know, there's a great book by Ron Lieber called The Opposite of Spoiled about raising kids with a great sense of money and, and ethics, um, financial sense and a sense of ethics around money. Uh, and he talks about this in that book too, that, you know, he's the Your Money columnist at the New York Times, that, you know, we give kids an allowance to help them learn how to deal with money, not to help them be a part of the household duties. You're part of household duties and you do things around the house to help because you're part of a family. Um, that, you know, attaching that to money just makes no sense. I love it so and much. It undermines, and it undermines the chances that they'll do it over the right. long term. So. Right. Um, as somebody recently reached out. Well, first, if you want more on positive uh, rewards or reward punishment systems, episode 99 is with Elfie Cohn um, mm-hmm. on this exact topic. So right, people exactly. can dive into that. Yeah. So people can dive into that episode if they want more on that specifically. But when we're talking about the household chores. Somebody recently reached out and they were like, Hey, like we want to create like a chore chart for our house. Like, do you have any thoughts? And I was like, put yourself on it. Like, what are you doing to be a part of the family so that it's not just like, here's what you're responsible for kids. (laughs) Um, but to incorporate ourselves again with the modeling that like, here's what we all do to participate in this household. And even, I think even when we're acknowledging things that we're grateful for with our kids, like, Hey, not thanks for cleaning up those not just like, I need you to clean up those toys. I'm proud of you for cleaning up the toys, but thanks for cleaning those up. So I don't step on your Legos when I walk by that really hurts my foot. Right. Like to bring them back into where a part of the family, I think is huge. I love that you discuss household responsibilities in the book. What would you consider for as like appropriate responsibilities for a younger crowd and how to start to frame those expectations? I get the coolest videos um, including from uh, Rachel Simmons, who's do- who wrote the book Enough As She Is and um, Perfect Girl Speaks and Perfect Girl, uh, you know, she's, she is, um, she's a fantastic writer. She works with women at uh, Smith College and at the Hewitt School in New York. And she sent me this fantastic video of her daughter, her daughter who could, was, you know, just past toddlerhood, loading her dishes in the dishwasher. I talk a lot to a lot of parents who decide to give their kids a responsibility and then think, oh, there's no way they can actually like do that whole thing. Then we'll just see how much they can do. And then you turn around and they've actually done the whole thing and have come up with some resourceful way to do the whole thing. My, um, when my kid was about nine, um, his job was to keep the wood. So was when we had a wood stove heating our house, hello, Vermont, or actually this is New Hampshire. Um, <laughs> His job was to keep the wood in the mudroom stocked up so that, you know, because he can carry a log at a time, you know, if he can't carry three or four, he can carry one. And the thing is, is that if there's no wood, the house gets really cold and I don't mind the house being cold. So I would let it get pretty cold. And it's a pretty direct, you know, or he also, one of his other jobs was um, back where his treehouse was and he had the swings and stuff the apples from the apple trees would collect on the ground and wasps would get all over the apples and they would get stung. So the way to make that not happen is to clean up the apples. So once a week, um, you know, his job was to go out there and put them all in these tubs. And then um, we would stick them out next to our driveway and someone would come and pick up the apples to feed the pigs or actually our local bear rehabber would feed them to some local bears, bear orphans. But making it clear that 
I'm not just asking you to do these things for the heck of it. I'm asking you to do these things because they have very real impact on us as a family. There's also research that I mention, not terribly extensively in the book because there's not a ton of it, but there's some research that shows that when kids have an active role in helping support the family um, from a labor standpoint, sometimes from a financial standpoint, this is a study during, done during the Great Depression, that the kids suffer fewer emotional, less emotional harm when something bad happens to the family. Because when kids feel like they're pitching in and helping, if someone gets sick, if someone gets hurt, if a divorce happens, they feel like they actually have the skills, the competence to help keep the family moving forward and they're not just dead weight. Kids need responsibilities. And saying that my kid is a kid this is the only time he's going to get to be a kid. And so his job is to just be a kid is taking so much away from them in terms of purpose. And it's really not a great situation to put your kid in. It's really unfair to do to them. Yeah. I think part of it is not knowing, I think especially when they're young, their cognitive function changes right. so fast right. that like exactly. it's it's keeping up with like what can we expect from them at different ages right. and, and to get back to that question that's very specifically why in gift of failure i used the uh, all the resources i could find on what kids were physically able to do at certain stages cognitively able to handle at certain stages and sort of emotionally able to handle at certain stages and then came up with chores and I don't use the word chores, I use the word household duties, because frankly, I don't want to do something that's referred to, that I refer to as a chore. It sounds horrible. Um, and then I came up with lists for very specific age groups for what they could do at certain ages. And um, that was a really fun exercise to go through because you have to, I ended up looking at a whole bunch of lists of what kids used to be expected to do at certain ages, including a list that, as, uh, that Maria Montessori came up with years ago. And some of those items on the list, you look at them and you're like, my six-year-old could never do that. What are you talking about? But that's because I think we've come to really underestimate what kids are capable of. And the nice thing is we know a lot about what they can do mentally and cognitively now because we understand more about the development of executive function and their frontal lobes and stuff like that. Um, but that's why it's so much fun to come up with that list and that sort of prompt for what kids can do at certain ages because physically and emotionally and mentally and cognitively, they can do a lot more than we give them credit for. Yeah, absolutely. And I think so much younger than we give them credit for. We have uh, next week's podcast episode is on uh, emotion coaching an infant or toddler because we get this mm -hmm. all the time where people are like, okay, great. That sounds good for like preschool age and above, but what do I do with this right. kid who can't respond to me or it doesn't have the verbal right. language? And I'm like, man, they're capable of so much more than we give them credit for. Yeah. And my work and my research was primarily in infant toddler. And so I was, I have seen kiddos where like when we can give them this opportunity mm -hmm. to show up they often will, unless we have some sort of other delay or challenge underlying here. Right. But most of our kiddos, we had a mom just reached out who was like, my 13 month old, every time we get in the car, into the um, cart at the grocery store is having 
full blown, blown screaming tantrums, like people in the grocery store are saying things like, I feel overwhelmed by this. And so I was talking about ways that she can like preach each and support them going in of what to expect in ways that he can be a part of the grocery store experience. And she was like, I, do you think he can like understand or handle that though? <laughs> Man, yeah, let's give him at least a chance. <laughs> exactly. Well, and one of the things that, one of the research that was really interesting to me that went into Gift of Failures, Wendy Grolnick's research on autonomy supportive parenting versus um, directive parenting or controlling, but mm-hmm. directive is such a nicer word. Um, <laughs> when what she, she came up with these tasks for little, little kids, like just past infant kids, um, she came up with these tasks that were meant to be a little bit frustrating for them. And when they had parents who heavily directed them, who told them exactly what to do in what order to do it, and were right there to prompt the next step, anytime the kid got a tiny bit frustrated, frustrated, often even before they got frustrated, those kids were less able to do tasks on their own when the parents were not present because they had not developed this social, this sort of emotional wherewithal to deal with frustration. And the kids who had what are called autonomy supportive parents, parents who were there and supportive, but didn't tell the kid how to do it and in what order to do it, but let them have some autonomy over the process. Those kids were much more likely to be able to complete difficult tasks on their own when the parent was not right there in the room with them. So to me, that's so important as a teacher because that means that when I present kids with challenging tasks or desirable difficulties, which are, you know, tasks that are just a little bit more difficult to to parse going in, but ultimately get remembered for longer and are understood more deeply in the short term, the only kids that can benefit from those tasks are the ones who can handle a little bit of frustration. Um, And that means that your kid, if you do everything for them, is going to be less able to learn moving forward than a kid who can get frustrated and stick with it and deal with their own frustration. And that's really where the rubber hits the road as far as teaching goes, as far as learning goes, all the way from preschool all the way through, you know, graduate school. Totally. And I think that that's really what we're looking at when we look at quote unquote success or even being Mm -hmm. able to like chase your dreams, so to speak. My cousin who lives with us right now graduated with her master's in nonfiction creative writing in the in May. And so right now she's done like submitting pieces for publication. And she just had her first piece published and was super jazzed and she had shared it. And uh, someone in our family reached out was like, oh my gosh, this is so amazing. Like any magazine would kill to have this. She's like, I submitted it to 12 places and 11 (laughs) places turned it down. Like, (laughs) uh, no. Um, But she it's not like she got that rejection and was like, oh, right. I'm not a good writer. I can't yeah. do this. Yeah. Right. And it's that ability to say like, yep, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep yeah. submitting this to different places. Uh, and I think that's the key when we look at quote unquote success, whether yeah. it's in relationship or financially or in, in career is that ability to say, yeah, I have hard feelings around this. Like it's frustrating yeah. to hear that. No, it's disappointing to hear that. No. And I have the tools to process that hard emotion and try well, again. And I think one of the most important lessons, one of the most important things I ever taught my kids was one of the hardest things for me to go through, which was um, I handed Gift of Failure in um, after much, it was sort of, there was, the book was sold at auction. There were like 14 publishers are, you know, fighting for it. It was a big deal. Um, and I handed in the first draft and it was terrible. It was really bad. My editor 
it was bad. And at the same time, I'd had a head injury and I couldn't, you know, with all the associated depression and, and emotional lability and all that stuff that goes along with that. Mm -hmm. It was, I was so emotionally labile. And, but my kids, my kids watched that. My kids saw, they saw me write the article and get the original article published in the Atlantic for the first time. So they saw that triumph. Then they saw the back, the social media backlash that sort of hit afterwards, and that was a hard. And then they saw me sell the book, and that was a high. And then they saw me write the book, and that was hard. I mean, it's like, oh my gosh, mom is spending every minute of her day, you know, working on this book for years. And then she writes the book and triumph. Oh no, not triumph. It's terrible. And then I had to go and you know, they they know what was involved, which was me having to come to terms with all the mistakes I made and fixing it and becoming a better writer. And they've now witnessed, okay, well, this book that was terrible went on to become a much better book because of my ability to absorb and digest feedback, hit the New York Times bestseller list. And then the next book that I just finished is in much better shape as a first draft than Give to Failure ever was because I had this, they've seen it, this huge checklist next to my computer. Don't forget not to do this. Don't forget checklist. Do that thing that you did all over the place in Gift to Failure that was such a mess in the first draft. So they've watched me and heard me talk about the grueling and, you know, horrible and wonderful process of becoming a better writer. And it's not like, wow, she's an overnight success. She published an article that went viral and then sold her book at auction and did really well with the advance and suddenly had a New York Times bestseller. They know that that's not how this worked. They know how much work went into this and they saw me cry and they saw me be completely humbled and have to remain open to the feedback. Um, and that, it was one of the most difficult things I've ever been through professionally and emotionally. But I'm so grateful I went through it, not just for myself, but so my children could see every step of that process. That's been, I think, one of the most important things I've ever taught them. And in watching you do that, they also got to see that you have the emotion processing tools to process hard feelings, which allows them the freedom to turn to you with their hard stuff. Because even if it makes you sad or disappointed or frustrated or angry, you have the tools to process those emotions. Yeah, and actually that was entertaining after the head injury because they also knew that, and my husband was a physician, was able to talk to them about what I was going through, that part of what they saw was, huh, that's what happens during a head injury. And sometimes we um, have to be a little gentler with people. And, you know, that whole process, I would not wish, you know, the head injury on anyone, but it was also a good way for me to build some empathy for my own students who bunk their heads and I expect them to be ready to go back to school the next week, you know, and jump in with both feet. You know, you're like, oh, it's been a week. Come on, get with the program, you know, stop falling asleep in class. You're fine now. It took me yeah. months to get over from that head injury. So, uh, you know, that was, totally. it was a really good experience all the way around, even though it was wrenching and horrible and terrible and great. Totally. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, Jessica, I feel like I could get nerdy with you for a while, but um, <laughs> will you let folks know where they can connect with you, where they can find Gift of Failure, failure all that jazz? So everything you can always find at jessicalahey.com, L-A-H-E-Y. Um, and if you sign up there, you actually get, like if you sign up for the email list, you actually get an auto reply that has 
gift of failure frequently asked questions these videos i made to ask the questions i get most often um links to my bibliography which is like my best my greatest hits favorite you know parenting and teaching resources um and a, a discussion a discussion guide for gift to failure among about 20 other things um and links to our podcast and uh all that kind of stuff that's awesome thank you so much thanks for sharing your time you are with us. so welcome Thanks for tuning in to Voices of Your Village. Check out the show notes for this episode and all past episodes at voicesofyourvillage.com. Did you know that we have a special community for all of you to be a part of so that we can all gather together to raise emotionally intelligent humans? Head on over to Facebook, search Seed and Sow colon Voices of Your Village and dive into that Facebook group. We cannot wait to hang out with you and collaborate on raising these tiny humans. If you're digging this podcast, head on over to Apple Podcasts, scroll down, click those stars and leave a review. It really fills my heart to hear from all of you. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone, and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy.